through email comes through for me. Oh, thank you. We continue as we have been since the fall in our narrative lectionary series. We've been making our way through the Bible from beginning to end, and we've been in Mark for a number of weeks now. As we're headed into Lent, we continue in Mark. Those of you who like to follow along will be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through uh, 9, verse 8. So if you like to follow along, find Mark eight twenty-seven, and hear these words from the Gospel. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days to rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And he called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to all of them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here right now who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days after, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, And led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around, and they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we welcome this story as mysterious and strange and confusing as it is. We welcome it into our hearts and our lives this morning, and we ask you to help us understand it. We ask you to open us to whatever word and message it holds for us in our lives and our community today. And may the 
words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a lot going on in this story, friends. We could have preached on any one sentence in the story I just told. That's the thing about the narrative lectionary, is it takes much longer portions of scripture and says, here, you deal with this. <laughs> so, in the scripture today, I'm going to focus on that transfiguration piece, that last part. We see Jesus with his disciples on a holy mountain. It's, it's an ancient and holy story that we've come to call the transfiguration. We celebrate it as a holy day, even marking it on the Christian calendar as so significant that it gets its own Sunday. It shows up in all four of the Gospels, too, which we all know, having been walking through the scriptures together this year, that when something shows up in every Gospel or repeats itself, we have to pay attention to it. I mean, not even Jesus' baptism shows up in all four Gospels. But this one absolutely does. So we know that it is very important. But why? Jesus has given his disciples and the crowds who've been stalking them across the Galilean countryside so many clues over the last eight chapters of Mark that he is human, that he's like us, that he is, in fact, a person as we are. And they have fallen for it. They've fallen for every clue. Remember, they often think that he's just another military or religious leader who will contradict or oppose the current imperial Roman domination system. They have said yes to that. He's sort of a, to some of them, a G.I. Joe Jesus, right? Better than most of us, but really just like us in the end. Just a really great human. He's also shown them some pretty keen miracles along the way that clue them into the fact that he is more than meets the eye, though they don't understand uh, what that might mean. But let's be honest, there are a lot of beliefs about medicine and illness in the ancient Near East in Jesus' time, and no one would sniff at a decent miracle here or there and think that would make somebody the son of God. And the hills were sort of lousy with miracle workers, actually. They were constantly competing with one another. And some even claimed that they could raise the dead, as they had just witnessed Jesus do a couple chapters earlier with the daughter of Jairus. And he calls himself the son of man in this book. Clearly human. It's pretty hard, therefore, for them to see him as divine. I mean... Every once in a while, they confess him as Jesus Christ, Son of God. You can see Matthew 16 and Simon Peter's sudden insight. And this chapter in which he says, you are the Messiah. We don't really know what Simon Peter means by that. We don't know in Mark 1.11 if anybody else heard at Jesus' baptism God's voice saying, you are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. The text, does, it records that that happened, but it doesn't actually say that anyone but Jesus heard that divine voice. And so we don't know what it might mean, in fact, for his being. Did he just hear it or did everyone? It's not like this known quantity, the son of a carpenter and a local woman from a nearby town, seems particularly divine. He doesn't walk around looking like somebody who is a direct lineage from the creator of the universe. He looks special. Maybe. That's probably so. 
And yet, here we are on this holy mountain, this important place, and four human men, evidently, are suddenly seeing something new. Jesus literally glows with the light of God. He, according to the story, lights up. He's transformed into a divine being. He's still himself, as they knew him, a man walking around. But he's also more. Not really more. I mean, he's been this too all along, but now they see the more that's been less evident to them in the previous eight chapters. Does that make sense? All of a sudden, his moreness, if you will allow me to make up a word, is obvious to them. It's clear. And then God speaks the exact same words that God spoke at Jesus' baptism, which, like I said, they weren't present for. They can see him for what he really is. He is both himself, Jesus, and God's son, the beloved, in whom God is well pleased. He is human and also divine. He's still the man they know and in clear, direct kinship with the maker of the cosmos. He is not either human or divine, either. He is both and. He's perfectly seen by God and by his closest friends for who he really and truly is. He's transfigured into his full self in their minds, in their hearts, in their understanding until they look at him, and this is my favorite part of the scripture. They look at him, and as the scripture so simply and beautifully says, they saw no one around them anymore but only Jesus. They see only Jesus. No more Moses and Elijah on a technical level, of course. They seem to be gone. But I also think this is another way of the gospel writer saying they saw him, just him, perfectly as himself. They see only Jesus. Fully human, fully divine, fully present, fully evident to them, only Jesus in all of his glory. Quick church history lesson. For 2,000 years... The church has argued about whether Jesus was and is either fully divine or fully human or some mix of the two. Our problem, of course, is that as humans, we like math. Well, some of us like math. We like math to work. We rely on it to be math, right? And so we all know that you can't be 100% one thing and 100% another thing at the same time. Amen? That's not, it's 50% and 50%. That's the way it's supposed to, or 75, 25. Like, but they have to add up to 100%. And here's where we get ourselves into trouble. Whole councils. Imagine, if you will, well-meaning men in interesting hats argued for literal years. Some of these councils would go on for a decade about whether God and Jesus in the old language were of the same substance. A nice little Greek word, homoousius. Ah, Andy remembers from seminary. The first council of Nicaea kicked it off, and they presided over, were presided over by an emperor, Constantine, and they were convened specifically to resolve this question, basically the church doing math. Can Jesus and God both be 100% the same thing, or is that impossible? And the council condemned something called Arianism, which taught that Christ was more than human, but not fully divine. 
The fight continued and continues to this day. In fact, like that council came to a decision and then Christians all over the world were like, that's really nice guys, but we disagree with you. <laughs> and this is what people are talking about when they say they have a high Christology or a low Christology. How human or divine do they really think Jesus is? Now, we're not going to solve this problem today. 2,000 years of men in interesting hats couldn't do it, so I'm not going to try. But I don't even know some days where I stand on it, frankly. Do you have an answer? Okay. I was hoping maybe you could get up here and explain homoousius to me. But here's the thing, is that some days I need Jesus to be super divine. I just need him to be fully God, right? And other days, I need him to be perfectly human. And maybe that's helpful. Maybe our human brains need to be able to struggle with things and people and idea who, ideas who, uh, that don't fall into easy boxes. And maybe some days we need to be able to say, yeah, that box works for me right now. And other days we say, no, 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 this one. And we've been trying to put people into categories since the dawn of history. I mean, I think it might be the human condition that we label and judge and objectify each other. I mean, are, are you friend or foe? This is a survival tactic, right? Which box do you fit into? Are you good or evil? If we know these things, we know, or we think we know, what to do with one another, right? And Jesus is all of the things. He falls into none of the boxes, and also, weirdly, all of them. That's the problem with the math. He blows the doors off of categorization and labeling and even understanding. He is, in the fullest sense, a paradox to us. We cannot grasp him. Because we are terrible at seeing the both and, right? And this is what I think this story changes for all of us. It's a hinge in every gospel. It's why I think the gospel writers all commit to including it in their storytelling. Suddenly, Jesus is clearly fully connected to both the kingdom of heaven and this present creation simultaneously. He is both and in every way. Where we see it and know it and understand it, he is there. Where we don't know or see or understand, he is also there. It's always true. When he's walking around with bare and dirty feet down a road to Samaria or when he's handing bread to his friends in a guest house or when he's spitting in the dirt to rub a blind man's eyes to heal him, he is all human and all divine. It's true, it's always true, when he's arguing with the Sanhedrin in the city square or dragging his tired and beaten body toward Golgotha. It's true when he's dead in the grave. And it's true when he's resurrected. When he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and when he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, he is both human and divine. When he appears to each one of us today, now, here, where we stand, where we sit, where we are, he is both. And. And we see it in glimpses. This Jesus who is both. 
but I feel like I flash in and out of it. Have any of you ever seen one of those optical illusions? I should have put one up on the screen, where you, you see, and if, if you look in one way, it's a young woman. Same picture, you look at it a different way, and it's an old woman. Do you know this picture I'm talking about, this optical illusion? Both are there simultaneously. They, it's not like a different picture suddenly flashes up. It's the same thing, but have you ever had the experience where you can't see both at the same time? I can never manage to see both simultaneously. Well, during the mountaintop experience, this is sort of the disciples experiencing the ability to see the optical illusion both at the same time. They see Jesus, they see this person that they've known, and also the God of the universe present in glory. Perhaps the first and maybe only time until the resurrection, the disciples see him fully all at once. They understand suddenly, oh my goodness, this is not just this side or that side of Jesus, but all of him, and it absolutely freaks them out. They lose their minds. They, the, the text actually uses a word that, it says terrified, but it means something so deep and core and frightening. It would like lay you down on the ground and you wouldn't want to get up again because it was so immobilizing, this knowledge. What is it about seeing the fullness of God that is so terrifying? I mean, we have lots of stories about this, actually, especially with Moses, because he was, um, for some reason, given the ability to see God in person. Especially in chapters 33 and 34 of Exodus, we get a transfiguration story of Moses' own. He actually gets transfigured, much like Jesus does in this story. He comes down off a holy mountain and is shining and light and um, he can't hide him, his face, and the people are terrified. And also when God tells Moses just a chapter earlier in the same book in Exodus, Moses says, please let me see your full glory. Let me see the face of God. And God says, you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. And so God turns God's back and hides in a rock while Moses passes by. Humans who see God's full self die of it. We, we can't, as the people we are, take it in. We don't have the capacity somehow, according to our stories anyway. We can't take in God's full glory, as the text says. So this word glory is really important. It's used in our text for this morning. It's used throughout stories that reveal God's full self, the seat of presence, if you will. That's an old-fashioned term for what we're talking about this morning. This word glory is wonderful. In the Hebrew Bible, it's the word kabod. And it means abundance, honor, splendor, dignity, reverence. And it comes, the source word, it comes from the word for liver. For a human liver, right? Which hints at someone or something that is heavy, weighty, abundant, important, core. Core to who you are, core to how things work. And I like this word. I like the word kabod. First of all, it's cool to say. And secondly, it, it kind of 
if you think about it, it means something so weighty that it kicks you in the guts, right? Like it gets you right where you live. It gets at your inmost parts. It takes out your center. Glory. Something so core and holy and weighty that it is terrifying. So Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all of his glory. And they are taken out in the guts. This experience is so powerful that it lays them down. It stops us short. It makes these guys, anyway, especially Simon Peter, who gets the worst role in all of scripture. And sort of the jokester of the bunch, right? Like the one that, that everybody can make fun of. We, we all can feel bad for him because he always says the dumb thing. He always says the thing that you would say, you know, or that I would say. It makes them desperate. This is how big this is. If you remember the text, he says, let's build a monument to this moment. It's so important. Let's mark the date and time. And Jesus immediately says, terrible idea. It's really a bad idea. We don't do that. You cannot actually get it done, first of all. How, what are you going to build? Are you going to put a plaque on that pew? That's what we always like to do in the church, right? He says, no, let's build some buildings. And let's make them the thing that we use to remember this important moment. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, basically. But I understand Peter in this moment because how are you supposed to take in and hold on to something that big? How are you supposed to remember it? I mean, according to the story that we're in, in Mark, this thing happens to them, this amazing thing, this thing that never happens to anyone, almost ever, that is so big that they literally never talk about it again. They never discuss it. They never have a follow-up with Jesus and say, hey, do you remember when we were on the mountain and you turned into God? And it was really scary. Can we talk about that? They just let it lie. That's how difficult this was to comprehend, to understand. They didn't even have words to ask questions about it. I mean, one moment, Jesus is their friend. This person that they've done all of these things I described with, the walking and talking and eating and healing and arguing, and the next he's a divine figure filled with unimaginable light. And I wonder, I wonder if the terror that they feel comes from the realization that this is, in fact, who they've been walking around with. If they start to relive their time with him, that this is the guy that I gossiped about my family to. This is the one who I told that really stupid story to when we were walking down the road. This is the one who I ate with. This is the one who I dared to argue with. If they suddenly saw their lives with him sort of flash before their eyes and they realized, oh my stars, my friend is a god. My friend is the god. And if their second thought is then, oh no, 
I don't understand how I'm supposed to be with him anymore. I've given my life to this, and that seems right. I mean, I'm glad that I said it. He said, follow me, and I said yes, because if I said no, what would I have done? But also, what am I supposed to do now? I bet that there's some panic in there. I would feel panic. They love him. He's their friend. But they are terrified of him. Now they are suddenly frightened of this bigness and the reality of him, the wholeness. The, they could handle him, I think, when he was just difficult. When he was just a strange storyteller or an oddly capable healer who could cast out demons, like a doctor with superpowers. But that they've seen before, remember? They're accustomed to rabbis. They're accustomed to healers. They're accustomed even to miracle workers. That stuff all kind of makes sense in their world. But this, this is completely without categorization. It's wild. He is wild. And they're drawn to him, but also repelled. And they're trying, as mystery writer uh, Douglas Adams says, they're trying to F the ineffable. They're trying to understand what is completely without understanding. So I haven't gotten to the good news yet. You may wonder where I'm going with this. Because so far, all I've said is, guess what, you all? Jesus is God. Well, what would it mean for us to take seriously this Jesus? Not as an abstract concept, but for real. Not about as something we assent to mentally, but as something that we feel so deeply in our livers and our guts, as, we, as something that we encounter and experience and then absorb in such a way that, in fact, if we looked at it directly, we couldn't handle it. What would that mean for how you change? What, what would it change in your life? Not everything. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Oh, that's a sermon. I think about how unpredictable this Jesus is. This Christ, this God. And how scary unpredictability is. How scary wildness is. How attractive and also repellent it is. I remember my husband and I were hiking in Glacier uh, in 2014. We were making our trek across the country to move to Portland. And we were hiking in Glacier. And we'd taken one of those little tiny trips that you think, oh, we're just going to get out of the car for a second. And maybe it's like take a walk on a trail and then get back in. And we had taken a trip up the path, and it was really snowy. We didn't have any snowshoes with us, so we were um, certain we wouldn't get very far or see anything. And I made a left-hand turn, and right here, where Ethan is sitting, just right here, was a moose. (laughs) And if any of you are from the Midwest, you know we don't have moose in the Midwest. The largest thing I'd ever seen was a cow. And this moose was so huge and so present, and it just turned its head and looked at me right in the eyes. 
And I thought two things simultaneously. I want to get closer and touch it. (laughs) And the second thing I thought was, run away. Run away. This is the largest animal you've ever seen up close and in person, and it you're not entirely certain if they're carnivores. <laughs> and I had this feeling of closer, closer, closer. No, no, that's a bad idea. And what I did, because it's a wild animal, what I did, probably very wisely, was back away as slowly as possible without making more eye contact and whisper to my husband, run. And we did. But I remember the feeling in my spirit of attraction and repulsion. I really did want to touch this thing. And also knew that it was a terrible idea and my life would be forever changed. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is a moose. But I am saying that when we encounter something truly wild, we do not know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with it. And we have conflicting feelings simultaneously. One could say that the math doesn't work. I was 100% attracted to touching this moose and 100% convinced that that was a deadly decision, right? It's so scary, unpredictable, wild things. They're otherworldly, they're extraordinary, they're moving, they're compelling. And so this is Jesus. He's all of those things in this story. And Peter's first response, and the church's response, our response, is to immediately domesticate him. To domesticate our Jesus, to make him friendly and small and approachable. What if he's more like a dangerous animal, like this moose that I told you about? in the forest than a puppy. We like a Jesus who's like a puppy. Someone who will cuddle up against us and walk with us and talk with us and who we can call our own, as the song says. But what if we have to go out into the wilderness, those hard-to-navigate, uncomfortable, possibly life-threatening places all over our lives, to encounter this God in fullness, to see the glory of God. What if the only way we can really meet Jesus, like the disciples did on this mountain, is to go to dangerous places in the world, dangerous places in our hearts, dangerous places in our community? If we want to see God in glory, what if that is our calling? And what if our Jesus, our God, is only bland and easy to swallow and approachable because we've made him that way? What if this is why the world doesn't find him very attractive? I mean, that's hard enough to deal with, but then I wonder too, and this is the part that's really scary, What if this transfiguration stuff isn't just about Jesus, but it's about us and our lives and our perspective? Is that the cross that he begs us to carry with him just a few verses earlier in the text? 
to stop being domesticated, to stop being easy to swallow, to stop being uninteresting, to stop being, I don't know, just stop being boring, to not have lack of courage, to not be afraid to say the difficult thing or to do the thing that the world doesn't really understand. To It seems to me that Jesus' lessons leading up to this story and beyond as he travels to the cross for the rest of the book of Mark, he says, when the world tells you to zig left, zag right. When they tell you to go low, go high. When they tell you that you should be quiet, you speak. When they tell you to not be yourself, be fully that. When they tell you to be afraid, be brave. What instead could we do that we are not doing? I feel like the church has been domesticated. What if at this table, the Lord's table, which we are going to approach in just a few moments, what if what we're ingesting is actually a transfiguring substance? What if this cup and this bread are really that powerful? Well, the good news is that Jesus is in it and in us and with it and with us. And the cross that comes with it is one that he, human and divine, has carried already. And it may be hard to fathom, but it's both been done and is our job to do to be this kind of Jesus in the world, to be wild, to be both and, to be human and divine, to embody the full mystery, the, the heaping glory that is on our side already. I don't know if I have an answer for you about how this is good news. Maybe it's good news because it's liberating. Because it frees us from the constraints and the binds that this world says, in fact, be small. In fact, be quiet. In fact, do not show the full glory of God, but keep it under, as we say, a bushel basket. Right? So this morning, I just pray that your faith heading into this Lenten journey, these next days of journeying with Jesus to the cross, and beyond is built on nothing less than a hope for full transfiguration. That that transfiguration will be of your very image of God. Of your very self. And of this world which desperately needs that kind of paradoxical, category-breaking, both-and kind of faith. Siblings, let me pray that it may be so for you today and always. Gracious and holy God, wild, undomesticated, both and glorious God. We ask you to explode our concepts of you and make what is real fully present to us this Lent. May you reveal yourself to us. We pray a difficult prayer. We pray that you will terrify us with your very presence. 
And we give thanks for all of the ways in which you invite us into that presence. Give us courage and strength to say yes. And to walk with you in the ways that you call us. Now and always. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.